Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Thanks to Kate for the last three hours of Out on the Patio. And a reminder, the show will be back next Wednesday between 4 and 7. Uh, we welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk computing, tech, data, ethics, design. Um, what else would you rather be doing right now? I'll tell you what. Um, certainly not fighting traffic or microwaving lasagna. Um, tonight uh, on the show, Laura Summers, how are you doing? Yeah, good, Warren. I'm um you know, remembering that it's now winter and it's dark and cold and thinking about what it means to be sitting in a warm, cozy place listening to radio, which is what I like to do over a lot of the winter. Yeah, it is a nice thing. I, I got weirded out um, around daylight saving when birds started making nighttime noises at like 4.30. I'd be sitting in my house working, which is what we seem to be doing now, and birds would just be like, right, I'm packing up. I'm mm-hmm. like, what? It's like mid-afternoon. Come on. Yeah, you're like, I'm still in my second cover. What are you talking about? It's the end of the day. <laughs> I'm just getting going, yeah. Um, yeah, how's your, yeah. your week in tech been? Oh, look, I was just saying before, my computer's about to pack it up and I'm trying mm. to decide what to get next. But, you know, that's, mm. that's kind of par for the course. She's a 2014 um, era, so she's had, had her day. Mm. Um, but, you know... Look, aside from computing stuff, um, I'm remembering what it means to be a triple R lover. Mm. And uh, uh, just like my old computer, triple R is in need of some capital injection. Um, If you are not aware, um, triple R had a pretty rough year last year with uh, COVID and loss of funding and loss of advertising revenues. And they were doing April Amnesty is on right now um, to try and drum up a little bit of love and a little bit of support for the for the station. Um, so if you do manage to subscribe during April, you means it means you automatically go into the draw to win a truly awesome array of prizes, including olive oil, jewelry, beer, coffee, and even a brand new bike. So if you would like some of that sweet gear, maybe go to triplerr.org.au and check it out and see if you could throw a few bucks our way to try and keep us going. That'd be appreciated. It was it was very quiet, um, especially doing the promos and stuff like that. You know, um, I guess when Hospo and, and the arts kind of like wind down and go on a hibernation, we, we kind of do too. So it was a very quiet year. Yeah. In that way. Uh, also tonight on the show, uh, somewhat silent producer Joe, who's wriggling her eyebrows in appreciation of, of being here. Um, take our word for it that she is in fact here. I'm here. You're My mic's here. on. Your mic is on. Yeah. Um, looking forward to some tunes tonight. Thank you for those. Um, and I'm with you too, uh, Warren Davies. And we've got a, a fun show coming up. Um, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Uh, Linda McIver, um, who's the Executive Director at Australian Data Science Education Institute, and talking, um, I guess, uh, about being sceptical about data and, and how we learn about it and, and uh, I guess, our data literacy, which will be um, ACE. And um, also uh, Angie Abdilla, who's CEO of uh, Always New, which is uh, an Indigenous design practice um, focusing on designing for place and, and country, um, which is great. Um, excited to talk about that too. But um, before those things, um, there is some news. Laura, you've been um, keeping an eye on data breaches, I believe. Oh, well, if you were not familiar, there was that big, big, big data breach um, that came out from Facebook or was at least made visible from Facebook uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and one of the more sinister uh, sort of revelations from that is that they are now kind of just explicitly saying that they want to normalize the idea of large scale data scraping. If you're not familiar with that term, it basically means 
people who are not Facebook looking at the Facebook public web pages and trying to scrape information off them. So whether that's images or text or your contact details, your mobile phone number, whatever it is, like they're trying to grab that information and put it to use somewhere else. And obviously there's no consent there and there's no contract between that other party and the person who supplied their information in the first place. Um, and Facebook is basically saying that they can't prevent this, they won't try to, and we just all have to get used to it. So that, that to me, yeah, that Joe is making this lovely, like, unhappy face, and that's basically how I feel about this. Like, it's not, it's not really an acceptable answer from one of the largest tech companies in the world, and certainly one who's been responsible for a fair amount of harm already. Mm. It's interesting. I guess um, scraping is is largely about context, like who's who's doing it and so forth. So, absolutely, um, you hear sort of scraping data, and it's kind of it sounds 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 dirty and a little bit sneaky and and what have you. But depends. Like if you're kind of finding stuff that should be shared, it, it's a good scrape. And a bad yeah. scrape is hey, you just need to get used to this. Um, Five hundred million users. A good example is Clearview AI, which is also an Australian company that was like very publicly raked over the coals for scraping images from social media networks um, mm. for faces. So they were training uh, facial recognition algorithms on faces that had not mm. consented to that use. And as you say, that's very contextual. Like if that person is being included in that data set and then that goes on to be used by a police force, which is then brutal to that person, like that's a very ironic and problematic mm. outcome of something that they didn't say yes to in the first place. Mm. Um, but there's lots of instances I've heard of and seen of scraping being pretty like legitimate or even beneficial for public knowledge. Um, so I think that, yes, you're right, it can go both ways, and that does make it harder to monitor for or to know how to try and control for it. Um, but but I, was, yeah. I was just thinking about something that we worked on once where someone was like, you can't get it, it's proprietary information, it's locked away, it's thousands of dollars to subscribe, and they're like, we'll just scrape it. And we're like, uh, mm. sure, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing Marge Simpson's face going, <laughs> it was like it was like oh yeah. having, well we've been doing it for years. It's like uh, okay, not our circus, not our monkeys. Like yeah. you, you guys just knock yourself out. Um, yeah, that is that is interesting. Um, there's uh, I, I guess a, a related story um, uh, from from that part of the world. Um, uh, 35 children's and, and consumer groups have called on uh, Instagram to scrap its plans to develop a, a kids version of uh, Instagram, which is I, I guess where a lot of their their energy and, and, and use has been in, in the group um, for, for the past few years. Um, so there's been a push um, following sort of complaints from legislators and parents that the platform has, has been too slow to, to sort of protect young users. And I think, you know, we're seeing some of that conversation pop up with the online safety bill here in Australia and, and how do we sort of guard against exploitation and um, grooming and, and some of those kinds of things, but sort of do it without kind of, you know, creating a Agent Orange kind of approach to the internet and just kind of spraying the whole thing with defoliant. Um, but um, their, their solution what a, here what is... What a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of not far wrong. Mm. But, um, yeah, even... even uh, I think I think the intent of kind of trying to create a safe kind of old space for people who have specific needs the the idea is not bad but the the application of it um, and how it would work is is bound to be clumsy and um, I, I think even just the general idea that um, perhaps the first question is should people below a certain age be using these kinds of things um, and should we kind of be making it harder for you know nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen year old kids to be accessing these kinds of platforms um, that's the first mm -hmm. question rather than just how do we make it easier for 
them to use it. Yeah. Um, well, it's the technology inevitability narrative, right? It's like, mm. oh, they're already online and they're just sneaking in sort of sideways by, by putting their name up or sorry, their, their age yeah. up sort of to the appropriate age. Um, so rather than saying like, is that behavior we want to mm. allow or encourage, they're like, let's just work out. You know what this reminds me of a little bit too? I'm going to draw mm. another metaphor. Mm. Do you remember like, or not remember yourselves, but have you read about how um, big tobacco companies used to design advertising specifically for children, but then just like basically lie and say, oh no, we're using cartoons, but it were, our target is 18 to 25 year olds, <laughs> but they were clearly targeting like five year olds and eight year olds. Mm. And, you know, thinking about technology addiction and thinking about the ways that, you know, they're obviously looking at building up the next segment of their consumer mm. base. This is like a pretty cynical ploy mm. to want to try and like get in on that early. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of, uh, sort of stagnant user groups would, would, it wouldn't surprise me if they tend to be older. Like, you know, we've had more time with it and we're kind of not getting the same buzz from it anymore. We stop using it. So you constantly got to replenish them. And if it can't be peers of those groups, because people aren't saying, Hey, you have to try this new thing. Like that the network effect is not working as well. You've just got to yeah, it's a good good analogy. I think um, tobacco. I remember one of the one of our favorite um, candies was like fake fake cigarettes when we were kids. We used to puff on them. Um, they're called fads now, um, but they had a they had a different name. But I wouldn't be surprised if you know big tobacco was buying stuff like that. Yeah, that's actually it. really interesting. I didn't I didn't know about that. That's not something I grew up with. But maybe mm. the states had different cigarette shaped candy. Big, big Boss. Surely right. you must have had Big Bosses. Spaceman candy sticks in New Zealand. Oh really? Spaceman. Yeah. Wow. Because you really want to be smoking when you're up in your uh, like little capsule. Suit. <laughs> like, that seems like a great idea. <laughs> Wowzers. Weird. Um, uh, you, you've also been, uh, I guess, interested in what's been going on with uh, Discord. I think we were talking about that a few weeks oh, back yeah. on the show. But um... Absolutely. Yeah. Discord has been fielding offers for a buyout. And that's lots of people who are gamers and you know the ch- users of the chat app. Discord have been kind of chewing their nails, wondering if they're going to get bought out. Um, and they were in talks with Microsoft, um, who were the top of the three competitors. But they've decided uh, just recently to end those talks and to stay independent which I think is honestly a bit of a win for those of us who want to see a nice sort of range of technology companies surviving and don't want everyone to get bought up by Fang. So um, I, I'm quite happy to see that news, and I hope that they stay independent as long as they can. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft, Microsoft buying you kind of is the end of the party if, if that happens. Um, well, maybe Salesforce is worse. I felt like that one. <laughs> Salesforce, what, what did they acquire recently? Um uh slack no Some, yeah. yeah yeah slack when they acquired slack i was like oh sad face sorry slack <laughs> that's the end yeah um some things that have been bubbling away though uh um sort of over the past i guess 15 16 months um it would not surprise anyone to see that um uh, outdoorsy startups um did get a shot in the arm uh, last year um while we spent more time um in isolation and, and away from uh, other human beings um so yeah last year um uh, um, I, I guess the outdoor recreation industry um, and startups like uh, Outdoorsy, All Trails, Cabana, Hip Camp, um, which um, made me laugh that name, uh, Kibo and a few other ones, um, have been seeing big jumps in, in use. And I guess you know, the definition of a successful startup is, is you know, sort of double-digit, triple-digit growth. But um, across all of these, it's kind of suggesting there is a bit of um, interest in the space. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean... Combined with uh, lots of people sort of um, uh, getting hiking equipment, going camping and, and going to places rather than big hotels, um, it's an interesting kind of space. I, I find this 
kind of curious in that there's not, generally speaking, you would say there's not a lot of tech required to get into the outdoors. It's kind of a place to kind of leave tech behind rather than go. You may let's, see let's tech detox space. from tech even. Detox, exactly. Mm. Um, so you would kind of think that maybe maybe maps is kind of all you need, but beyond that, maybe like a, a, an outdoor parks kind of app or something if you need to know like weather warnings or um, we, we, you know, river warnings or something like that. But um there are a few ones here that are really just kind of, um, I guess, taking the approach to um, sort of um, shared stays and, and homestays and so forth outdoors. And there's places like uh, campsite booking platforms. Um, I guess that kind of makes sense in that um, you can't imagine booking systems at camping grounds being particularly strong and, you know, websites for, you know, um, Warren's Caravan Park, they're probably not going to have, you know, best practice kind of stuff going on. Yeah, like uh, calendaring is a big hard problem and most of them get it. I, I was just thinking of trying to get down to um, uh, we were camping a couple like well, half a year ago and we were trying mm. to book something and I just could not work out what was available because it mm. was a popular time and like they book out really quickly and it's just like just show me the available dates don't make me click through one day at a time or maybe even just like a PDF of a calendar or something like that this is the calendar for this year suggested yeah. Yeah, but yes, you're right. It's funny because you, you would think there isn't that much tech to get right, but then um, you know there's lots of bad tech to fix, and there's also lots of overwhelm, which is just like which advice mm. do I follow, or you know which of these tools should I buy, or should I even need to buy this? You know, do I really need to bring the burner along for my one night over a trip, or is it yeah. better just to like have cold food and not worry about it? Mm. That is uh, that is interesting. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll just tweet out a couple of links to those places, but mm. um, I'm not sure if all of these are available in Australia yet, but. Um, even just kind of, it, it's funny the kind of uh, Airbnbification of of where we stay, even down to the um, swapping vans and stuff like that. Because van, I mean, van life also has been a huge thing, not just during the pandemic, but probably before that, because of the, I guess, the photo opportunities as much as anything. Like everywhere, every day is somewhere different theoretically. But um, swapping vans, I guess that's cool. It, it should probably happen for tiny houses too. I guess um, there'll be that buzz where people kind of get it and go this is great this is amazing and then a year or two later when you're kind of like you know at each other's throats or something like that <laughs> you're like, you need a little break from yeah, your tiny house into a very large house yeah or two very distant tiny houses yeah that works too yeah um and a- another thing that uh, i thought was nice um uh, you, you don't necessarily associate Tesla with kind of doing the right thing by the environment. It's kind of the Venn diagram of kind of thinking about, um, uh, oh, I mean, like kind of the, you know, the, the fuel source. But I think um, the the fact that you can actually um, now get a, an overview of where your um, battery power is coming from uh, is pretty cool. Um, you can actually see whether solar or coal is powering um, your, your recharge, um, which is great. Um, so Teslab, which is kind of a, uh, a free app that's kind of like a, um, a um, uh, sort of just monitoring usage and, and behavior and so forth for, for your vehicle, kind of like a Fitbit or something like that or an Apple Watch, um, shows, uh, shows the energy mix um, and breaking down the exact types and percentages of, of, of where it's coming from uh, at charging locations, which is cool. Um, and it's going out through um, superchargers and third-party networks around the United States. And so someone I know in Melbourne who was an original part of this um, was giving feedback on, like, what sort of data they would like to get and sort of help how their decisions would be made and so forth. Um, so they were pretty pumped for this one. But um, It's not available in Australia yet, though, I think. No, I don't think it is. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I do find it funny that like we see things like this happening with Tesla, but at the same time they're like, but we'll accept your payment in Bitcoin, which is like yeah, one of the yeah, most yeah. environmentally unfriendly things you can do for the world right now. But you know, cool story. Well, that's what I mean. Like I kind of like even even though it's an electric vehicle and it is taking sort of petrol powered cars off the road, I don't see them as here to kind of like save the world or um, it's kind of it's a related mission, but it's not the core purpose. Like it's just a cool piece of kit, and you know, it's a better. Uh, theoretically a better way to drive and travel and so forth and you can update your software as you drive which is cool but it's not like yeah i agree i think they're going for the cool toys market which happens to be good for the environment as opposed to good for the environment being like the core mission exactly right yeah um so i think this is nice and hopefully they will roll that out into uh, australia as well um there's yeah there's certainly thousands of teslas rolling around and i'm not sure about the specific charging stations but um there's another cool service associated with that um, electricity map which is a, a project that kind of so shows you sort of where you're going and, and where to get this stuff and um, maybe even I guess like miles traveled by um, energy source which would be great um, I think that'd be some cool data viz this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in Melbourne Australia triple r is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding if you would like to financially support triple r by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how And we are now going to have an interview with Dr. Linda McIver, who is the executive director of the Australian Data Science Education Institute, and also soon to be author of the upcoming book, Raising Heretics, which I am very fascinated to talk about. Welcome, Linda. Thanks very much. I'm really excited to be here, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. I should um, I should say, full disclaimer, Linda is a good friend of mine, and we often have a digital coffee at 2 o'clock um, in the afternoon. So sorry, friends. We know each other well. I apologize if I <laughs> make any silly references on air that uh, are just about our coffee time. But um, uh, Linda, you, you are very interested in helping people learn how to interpret data better, and particularly in how we educate young people on this topic. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. So um, I started at ADSE, the Australian Data Science Education Institute, because I had finally figured out in my faculty teaching how to get kids to engage with technology, uh, because I used to teach a year 10 subject that someone else had designed, which was all the fun stuff. It was drawing pictures, you know, drawing pretty pictures with code. It was making robots follow lines and push each other out of circles and all this kind of stuff. And the kids hated it. And they couldn't see the point and they couldn't see the relevance. And I was teaching in science school. So if those kids couldn't see the relevance of that stuff, then who can, really? You know, I I had a pack of nerds and they weren't interested in code, which is pretty drastic. When we started teaching data science instead, you, you know, we were teaching the same coding skills, but in the context of real data sets and real problems, Suddenly, the kids were super interested, they were super motivated, and they could see the point. And they were using it in other subjects, and they were understanding things about data literacy that they were using in you know, understanding media. And um, you know, suddenly, they could see the relevance of it to both their lives and their careers. So I wanted everyone to be able to do that, so I started the organization. But actually, it turns out that's not the important thing. Getting kids involved in tech is like a bonus. It's a side effect. The, the thing that we really need is everyone to understand data better. 
Yeah, well, certainly if data interpretation is increasingly important to all of the organizations that design policy and rule our lives, perhaps we shouldn't allow the expertise to only be held with the big companies, but needs to be democratized and available to everyone. Um, I'm, I'm sure you... I'm sure you have lots of anecdotes to hand, but I'm I'm thinking specifically about how visible data science interpretation has been during COVID. I'm wondering if you want to offer some thoughts on how that has helped or hurt us um, in terms of data science literacy in the general population, in terms of things like vaccine rollouts and you know understanding things like infection rates or death rates. Oh yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, the, the, from the start of the pandemic, it was clear that people's understanding of data was going to be crucial to the way we handled the the disease and, and protected people. Uh, and you can see very clearly that the uh, countries that followed the evidence had great success, and the countries that didn't follow the evidence that followed some kind of ideology, um, you know, have had horrendous death rates and just catastrophic infection rates. Um, but if you look at the way data has been presented during that time, it's often, it's almost always, not always, but almost always being presented scientifically accurately, but not in a way that most people understand. So, for example, early on, people were publishing infection rates using log graphs, which is perfectly scientifically accurate, perfectly uh, valid, but nobody reads log graphs by default, you know, except maybe the odd engineer or epidemiologist. I don't read log graphs by default, <laughs> and data is my, you know, entire reason for being at the moment. So um, mm. you look at a log graph and you think, oh, it's actually it's fine, it's, it's not too bad. But when you convert that to a linear scale, you see that the infection mm. rate is terrifying and rising at a, you know, completely unsustainable rate. And, and it wasn't that people were trying to mislead by publishing log graphs. They thought they were doing the right thing, and they were labeled as log graphs, but, but people don't understand that stuff. And if you're not communicating effectively, then you're not getting anywhere. Um, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with what you mean when you say a log graph, can you just quickly describe the shape of it and like describe kind of the mathematical principle behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So a log graph, is, it basically goes up by um, what we call orders of magnitude, which is powers of 10. So if you look at a normal graph, it goes up uh, in, a, in what we call a linear fashion. So you go 1, 2, 3, 4, and the gap between 1 and 2 is the same size as the gap between 2 and 3, which is the same size as the gap between 3 and 4. So it goes up in a very regular, predictable fashion. That's the way we're used to seeing numbers represented on a graph. But a log graph goes up in 10, so it goes 10, 100, 1,000. So the gap between 0 and 10 is the same as the gap between 10 and 100, which is the same as the gap between 100 and 1,000. So it's great for numbers that rapidly increase because you can show uh, a much greater spread of data on a smaller graph. Um, but it's really difficult to interpret because it makes a rapid rise look like a flat line. So it's sort of squishing an exponential growth in size into like what we think of as a, a more linear looking graph, and that's very easy to misinterpret. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like when we looked at the original infection numbers, we're like, we've got two people infected with COVID, that's not scary. Now we've got four the next day, that's not scary. Now we've got eight, eight is still not scary. But when you understand exponential growth and you know that doubling every day gets very bad very fast, then it becomes more meaningful. And that is something you can show with a linear graph, but it's really difficult to show with a log graph to people who don't understand log graphs, which is most of us. Maybe for both of you, I'd be very interested to know um, at your coffee afternoons, have you discussed... Um, I, 
I was trying to um, figure out a way to make sense of data the other day and noticed that Tableau, which is kind of a generally an expensive kind of you know, piece of software for interrogating data, now has a kind of open platform and I didn't have much of a chance to go into it. But w- what is going on in that space in terms of people have got these great sets of data and there used to be like Google Correlate, which was a way that you could like chuck stuff into Google and it would sort of show interesting things that it correlates with like, you know, heart palpitations versus cups of coffee in a day mm. and stuff like that. Um, like looking for the looking for the things that spike at the same time kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and, you know, entirely selflessly they did that, I'm sure, to, mm. to kind of um, pick up some, <laughs> you know, help us with our data problems. But is, is that stuff going on around the world in Australia? Can you just – are there great tools out there where you can just jump in and start crunching stuff? I think even Amazon made some efforts in that space uh, a couple of years ago. That's a really but good there, question. There yeah. Please, please, there, Lindy. There absolutely are some really, really awesome um, tools out there. But my concern is before the tools. My concern is that people jump in and use the tools and don't know what they're doing and they're not asking the right questions of the data and they're not being sceptical enough. So what I always teach, I teach teachers to teach kids with real data sets. And what I always say first off is the first very important question is what's wrong with your data? What's missing from your data? What's wrong with the way it was collected? How is this data not the data that you actually want? It's just the data that you have or the data that you could get. And... The trouble with a lot of data science courses is they leap straight into the crunching and they don't do that skepticism stage and they don't go, well, you know, any data set has flaws and any data set has biases and you need to actually start looking at that stuff before you go to the crunching. So I don't I don't send people straight to the data packages. I, I start with spreadsheets and I just go, have a look at this data. What can you see about it? What's wrong with it? Um, that's really step one. It's really important. There's a really good concept, which is data missing not at random. Um, and it's, hey, Linda, you know that story about the like fighter fighter um, plane that went, that they, like the, they look yeah. at the ones, the bullet holes that come back and they like, um, and yeah. that's like a perfect example of sort of illustration of this concept. So you, the idea is you have these planes, they go away, they go into dogfights, they come back and they're trying to work out how to sur- save more yeah. pilots' lives. Um, and they, don't, armor the, don't armor the space that got shot because it doesn't need to be protected. Yeah, yeah, well, the space that got... No, no, you do armor the space that got shot because mm. those are the planes that make it back. The planes that like got shot in other places, they go down uh, and sure. you basically can't save them. So the idea yeah. of data missing, not at random, is like the planes that you don't see are the ones that didn't survive and you're not yeah. trying to like help those you know like go from not survival to survival what you're trying to do is improve your survival mm. rate of the existing survivors mm. um, but yeah it's a it's unintuitive and you have to do quite a lot of like mental gymnastics to ask yourself like what can i not see and is there an interesting correlation or an interesting reason for that mm. um Anyway, sorry, I'm jumping on your time, Linda, and I'm, I want to hear more about your thoughts about how we how we do do this like inculcation of um, skepticism and helping the population build up their sort of um, immunity to bad data science or bad data analytics. Well, I think that for me, one of the key things is, uh, and it's something that we don't often see out in the world, is that when you do something or you introduce something new or you try something, you actually evaluate it to see if it works. And, and we need to be doing that with our data science and that when we've got a result, we need to actually test it really hard and throw everything we can at it to, to try to break it to see if it actually is a valid result. And when the kids do projects, the, the last step of the project is how well did it work and how could we improve it and what's missing? So um, the projects that, that I like the most are where the kids find a problem in their own environment, they measure the problem, they analyze and communicate those measurements, and then they try to fix it. 
And that crucial last step is then measure it to see how well your solution works and what it got wrong. And we don't do that. We don't do it in business. We don't do it in government. We don't do it in education. But if that was a, if that was a step that was default in projects, in every project students ever do, they evaluate it at the end and they actually look for the things that are wrong, then we can build that, start to build that in as a societal expectation that that's what you do when you do something new. You measure it, see if it works. Imagine if you not only had to do that step, but had to publish and share your findings with the public. So if you're a corporation doing something new, you had to expose the ways that you discovered the thing wasn't quite right or it didn't work for certain populations. Oh, absolutely. That transparency is fundamental. It's no good finding a result if you then kind of try to stuff it in the back drawer and hope nobody ever finds out. Yeah. And that is one of the challenges of doing sort of science in bunny quotes um, in, in corporate environments is that you really miss out on the aspect of trying to share your findings with your colleagues and people in similar spaces. And that's, I think, a, a broader um, cultural challenge we need to, to grapple with is like, how can we open up some of the research or some of the kind of re- research and discovery aspects of the work so that we don't see people in like little siloed data science teams making the same mistakes over and over again and not sharing it with people, you know, one company over. Mm, nice. Absolutely. And, you know, from an academic point of view, if if we actually valued publishing critiques and publishing, you know, um, studies that, that replicate results and publishing studies that um, debunk results, rather than just saying you have to publish something new or you're out of academia, then, you know, you build that culture of, well, it's okay to do something that's already been done because you're testing it. And, and you start to build, make that, you know, a thing that people can do and a thing that people value. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about the book. What, what's the kind of idea behind uh, behind Raising Heretics? So Raising Heretics is about using data science education to teach our kids to be critical and creative thinkers and to break out of education as a, as a, a model of here are a bunch of facts which you have to uh, repeat in order to get you know, in order to get marks, and here are a bunch of known processes which you have to apply in order to, you know, to pass the subject. So um, the the projects that I run instead are, you know, let's let's take something we don't know about, take something that doesn't have a single right answer that we actually don't know if there is an answer, and explore it and figure out the things that you need to do. It's a kind of problem-based learning. Um, and chapter two is kind of uh, it's. It's what would the world be like if everything was evidence-based, if we actually did things in a way that was based in evidence and, and, and science and data. And it was really depressing to write. I started to write it in, in about April last year, and I had to stop. It was making me miserable because I looked at four areas. I looked at medicine, climate science, education, and welfare. And in none of those areas do we do what the evidence tells us to do. We do things that are ideologically driven and historically driven, but not evidence-driven. And so Raising Heretics is really about changing the education system so that our world is evidence-based and that we do consider the evidence and the data and that we think about things and we solve problems creatively rather than churning out kids who have pass exams. So, Linda, if people are interested in maybe hearing when the book is published or even getting a little teaser of it, how would they find you online? Excellent question. Um, so if you jump on the ADSE website, which is adsei.org, um, then there is a, a newsletter you can sign up to where you get, you'll get you get excerpts from the book and information about how to get it when it's published. Um, 
And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter or follow Adsy on Twitter. Adsy is actually DataSciAU on Twitter. Amazing. Um, I cannot believe this time has gone so fast, but unfortunately we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Linda McIver. Thanks so much for having me. It was good fun. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It is 7.43, you're listening to Bob Into It on Triple R with Joe, Laura and Warren. And we're now joined uh, across the airwaves by uh, Angie uh, Abdilla, uh, who's CEO of Always New, which is uh, an Indigenous design practice. Um, and we're going to have a chat about um, a few things. Um, Angie, I'm going to try and pronounce this, but if I get it wrong, uh, apologies. Um, Angie is a, a Palawa uh, child Wulwai woman based in Sydney. She founded Always New uh, in 2016. Um, where she works with Indigenous knowledge holders and Indigenous knowledge systems across the continent uh, in the design of place, uh, places and deep technologies. She's presented uh, her published research on Indigenous knowledge systems, robotics and artificial intelligence at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and also co-founded the pioneering International Indigenous Protocols and Artificial Intelligence Symposium, uh, IPAI. Um, excited to have you on, Angie. Thanks for, for making time. Thank you for having me. Um, Laura and I just stumbled across something um, uh, as we were waiting for you to come to air and, and we just thought it was too good an opportunity not to miss to read it as an introduction to, to sort of the idea of um, uh, designing for place and I guess a, um, a really fascinating um, view of um, um, intelligence. Um, it's from your uh, piece, Indigenous Protocol and AI, um, and I quote, uh, a relationship is in the relationship. Who is building them? Uh, is it the Kanaka or the human? The rock, the mineral, the rock and the human are engulfed. They birth this program. Everything that comes uh, within, with the Kanaka and the human, his faults, his cellular structure that gets folded in with the mineral. You need the volcanic activity, the structures that create the calcium. We have to interface with the spirit. If we disconnect and let the spirit just move us, we are not having a kinship. The human's responsibility is to realize that the energy that makes us up that makes up the God is in you somewhere. If it is not there, how is it possible to interface with sky, interface with the thing that you are creating? The fact is that some of you is in it and some of it is in you. Um, uh, and I, I can't pronounce this person's full name. It's quite, um, it's quite amazing, but that's a beautiful, um, beautiful sentiment that um, the interface is not necessarily where we think it is traditionally um, in, in the West of you know, a screen and a keyboard and, uh, you know, our eyes. Um, what inspired you to start this practice and kind of, I guess, look at some of these different ways of experiencing um, intelligence? Mm, yeah, it's a really great quote, hey. Um, I guess because the, going back to 2016, um, there was a number of different experiences that I was having with new emerging technologies where I was starting to see that the design process itself was um, really... Um, skewing the, I guess, the priorities and the, all the decisions made within the design process to the um, usual suspects, um, middle-aged white guys, mm. <laughs> um, and their needs, or often very reductive um, user groups and their um, quite often limited um, perspectives. And there's um, awareness, I guess, with the um, how devoid 
the design process was of understanding complexity. And typically that's what we find in technology. You know, the, the way in which technologists have been con, um, perceiving and considering um, the design process of, for technology to, is that really of reduction. You know, what's the... Um, how can we reduce complexity so that we can make products that are, you know, kind of, um, I guess that, you know, benefit uh, the user groups that are typically at the centre of those decision-making, the decision-making process. So what I found was that there was this um, incredible opportunity to turn that on its head and look at how we can embrace complexity in the design process and what better way of doing that to look at um, than to go back to our old ways. And when we talk about old ways, we talk about what we're really referring to is um, Indigenous traditional knowledges and, knowledge, and those knowledges typically exist in various different complex systems. So it's those knowledges and knowledge systems that are um, that I believe are incredibly valuable in shaping the way that we can, first of all, um, dream up and conceive and then design and develop and deliver um, new emerging technologies. Mm. It's interesting. I think um, you're right there. Sometimes sort of what's generically known as kind of user research can be a bit of a shakedown like we just want to get to the you know what what are you going to press what what's the one need and you know edge cases be damned like we, we don't really care about sort of sort of diverse opinions on this um even within mm. kind of like fairly uniform groups what, what are some of these old ways of uh, of learning about things and expressing things that i'm fascinated to know um that kind of are a little bit different to sort of post-its and workshops and butcher's paper you know Mm. Well, I guess, you know, there's a method, the methodology that we've developed over these years is called country-centred design, and the process itself really is a framework that, and, you know, it's quite, um, we've iteratively developed the process itself, but what the process enables is, is for us, well, A, it's an Indigenous-led process, so first and foremost you have to have the cultural capacity or cultural intelligence to even kind of be in the... Um, to, to be facilitating this process. And in a sense, really, the, the framework itself um, really means nothing if you haven't got the capacity to, um, to listen deeply and to even sort of understand what the, you know, the, to be able to, I guess, identify what knowledges um, could be um, important in the trans translation piece. So, so there's, you know, first and foremost, there's identifying what the knowledges are, and then there's the the translation piece into the contemporary context. So, what we find is that often it's, you know, sometimes they're not. It's not really that, um, you know, uh, unusual. The 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 sort of the, information or the knowledges that are being shared but it's it's being able to tease those things out and understand the I guess the origins of things the premise you know why these things occur like for example you know a kinship system 
Um, there are various different types of kinship systems that exist across this continent, and some are matriarchal, some are patriarchal, or, or otherwise known as matricentric or patricentric. Um, and what they have been uh, known for is to, in, in a sense, like one, the, the purpose of these kinship systems has been to keep the bloodline strong, to keep the um, health and well-being of our communities. So there were no birth defects and there were no um, major health problems. We didn't have disease before the British came here, nothing. We had illnesses and so forth, but we didn't have disease. And that's because of the, the sophistication of these kinship systems designed in a way to ensure that there wasn't anybody... Um, uh, that, that, you know, we, we didn't have um, complicated... Well, dangerously tied bloodlines you know mm. there was so those you know kinship systems still exist today you know and there's so much we can learn from them you know in so many different ways and it's that kind of i guess curiosity it's a first of all the respect and the for those knowledges and those old ways and also understanding what's appropriate to um you know how do we how do we work with those those custodians and elders and, and knowledge holders and then therefore the the knowledges themselves to understand what's possible like how do we how could we use that information in a way that could support um, the design and development of other types of systems for example within AI like with neural networks and otherwise or um, within robotics or within um, even, you know, much more kind of accessible technologies like, for example, the user experience of, um, of a digital app and how, you, how that experience could be defined by the different types of relationships that you either, um, that are either avoidance relationships or, or relationships that are, that are um, kin, mm. you know, that are, that are tied to other deeper um, connections to Temic and connections. So, yeah, there's... Um, um, I'm, I'm really interested in this, this concept you're describing of, it sort of reminds me of the way people in tech talk about network graphs, but it's sort of got a much more deep and nuanced understanding of the nodes in that graph and how they connect to each other. Um, mm -hmm. And another thing you touch on in your Indigenous Protocol and AI work is the sort of centering of place. And I'm I'm really intrigued by that because so much of technology has this sort of decontextualized placenessness and it sort of it, it like not grappling with that in many ways like makes the place it was built like this cultural primacy that is unacknowledged or un ungrappled with. And I'm curious yeah. with how the idea of centering place helps people like design better or design with more nuance. Yeah, oh, it's really critical. It's such a great question too, because it's something we've been grappling with a lot. You know, in this last iteration of the Indigenous Protocols and AI Incubator that we just um, held um, just a few weeks back, over a three-week period, um, and we had mob from uh, across the continent. We kept this particular event to just to Australia. Um, the previous ones have been international cohorts. But it was really interesting because one of the key insights that came from that first cohort was that there are going to be many different types of Indigenous, of, of AIs, and, and in particular, Indigenous AI. And the reason being is because of that prime question that you posed, you know, how do we design with place? 
How do how is country centering us in the design process, and what anchors us? What anchors us different to the? I guess you know um, there are some people I guess who you know embrace sort of um, singularity and entanglement theories and that those sorts of kind of trajectories that don't have the capacity to anchor. You know those um, those um, those futures uh, in my opinion really kind of a little bit fraught because what we're seeing is this experience this, this the potential reality of um, the very real reality of of these um, existences being quite devoid of any real genuine connection that comes from from our perspective a knowing where you belong, knowing who you belong to, kinship-wise, but also knowing where you belong. Where is your country and how do you connect with country? How does that centre you and how does that then also inform the way in which you, you know, the, the culture in which you live within and the ways in which you do, you be, you see, you know. You know, all these things matter. And they you- matter a lot. Angie, this is um, this is fascinating. I feel like we could um, talk until about ten. But if if people, um, we do have to move on. If people want to learn a little bit more about designing for place and um, uh, and some of the work you've done, where, where can they find you or, or reach out and say hello? Um, on Instagram, Old Ways New, um, or on our website, we have an info page. Um, you can get in contact through the website. Um, and yeah, always keen to to expand the, the yarn and, and share. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.